I think one is the accommodations piece, which I don't say are surface level, but are things that have shown up time again, over and over again. So you're thinking about, you know, where are some places where I, I can pray on campus? Um, so I don't have to secretly pray on the staircase as Dr. Ellie had mentioned, or having halal food options and accommodations for that, um, or having as, you know, a place of a sense of belonging, whether it's a cultural center or a reflection space. These are things that have been said over and over again. There's research on this from you know 2001 till now. Those are the things that are keep on going on and on. But I think what's what we need to do is you know acknowledge that is a real issue because those are issues that haven't been really addressed. Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Dr. Glenn De Guzman. So I read an article years ago um, that um, prior to 2003, there was little to no research on the Muslim student experience on college campuses. And though, although there's more efforts taking place today, I'm still very curious to know how prevalent our student affairs practitioners are with knowing and understanding the Muslim student experience on college campuses. So in today's episode, I am joined by a panelist of awesome professionals and faculty from various colleges and universities to share the experience. Student Affairs Now is a premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every Wednesday. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. This episode is also sponsored by Simplicity, a true partner. Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. So to learn more about Simplicity, stay tuned at the end of the podcast, and I'm more than happy to share a little bit more detail about that. But let's get started. Uh, my name is, again, Glenn Guzman. I'm the Associate Dean of Students and Director of Residential Life at the University of California, Berkeley. I use he, him pronouns and recording this episode from my hometown, Livermore, California, which is the ancestral home of the unceded territory of the Pelnan tribe of the Loney peoples. Um, so let's meet our panelists. And so um, I'm very excited about this group. This is an episode for, for those listeners that um, many of our listeners have actually said, we want something on the Muslim student experience. And I'm, we're talking about multiple people who made this request. And so I'm just very excited to bring this group together to kind of to get this conversation started. And I'm sure we're going to have more follow-up episodes about that. So let's just get started, have them introduce themselves. But I'm going to start kick it off with uh, you, Farhan. Why don't you um, introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, everyone. My name is uh, Dr. Farhan Saeed. I'm an unapologetically American Pakistani Muslim. This work is very important to me. Uh, thank you for having me on here. Uh, my research really focuses on Muslim college students and, you know, particularly looking at those in, in the South, the Mid-South. Um, I'm really ex interested in exploring their identity uh, and how they conceptualize that. Um, professionally, I work at the University of Wisconsin, where I'm the Chief Diversity Officer and oversee the DEI efforts for the International Division, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Thank you for the introduction. And uh, my neighbor up in the north, up in UC Davis, Afaf, want to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Afaf Basim, and I use she, her pronouns. I work at the University of California, Davis, as director for the Middle Eastern, North African, and South Asian Student Resources Office, which is part of the Division of Student Affairs. Um, I got into this work because I wanted the type of mentorship that I hope I'm providing my students. 
Um, I came in as a um, Pakistani Muslim immigrant and all of those experiences have shaped my worldview and who I am and why I do this work. And I infuse um, everything that I do with a sense of care and love and um, and hoping that that is, you know, shown in, in, in my, um, yeah, in all the things that I do and is infused in it. So that's my perspective and experience. Thank you for joining the panel. And I'm definitely looking forward to hearing your perspective on things. And our third panelist, Noor. Hey, I'm Dr. Noor Ali. Um, I teach at the Graduate School of Education at Northeastern University here in Boston. Um, in all three of the programs, that's the Masters of Teaching, the Masters of Ed, and then the Doctorate of Education program here. I lead the Transformative School Leadership concentration at, um, at GSD here. I'm also a principal of a faith-based Muslim school in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts. Um, this will now be my seventh year as principal, veteran teacher of 17 years. Um, mom of three, get this, 20-year-old, 17-year-old, and <laughs> four-year-old surprise baby girl. Wow. Um, so totally in many different spaces. Um, in terms of uh, my work, predominantly interested in transformative school leadership, change agency, um, STEM education, but mostly, most importantly, interested in work around social justice and equity. Um, critical race theory is, is, is my go-to theoretical framework. I've, I've coined a micro theoretical framework that I call Muscret, and I'm sure we'll get to talk more about that later. Most definitely. And that uh, website, that Muscret website that you have, um, it's going to be in the show notes audience. So you have to check it out. It's unbelievable. Um, you want um, research, you want some insight perspective, you got to check that out. Um, so let's dive in. Um, and this is, you know, in transparency to the audience, this is a large topic. Um, and we can go in so many different directions. Um, and 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 the time that we have together would would not do it justice. So, you know, one of the things that I've asked the panel to do is really identify some of the things that they feel are most pressing um, to Muslim students who are attending college. And so, I'm going to have Afaf kick us off on the things that you see, um, observe, or are experiencing that the Muslim students are facing on college campuses. This is such a great question. I think to start us off with, um, but I do before I do start answering this question, I want us to be grounded in a couple of points. Um, so the first thing I want to name is that um, the Muslim student experience is very diverse. Um, there's a whole spectrum. And it's very important to recognize that the Muslim community is not only diverse in racial and ethnic backgrounds, but also in belief and their own understanding of their own faith, along with how they practice and express their belief systems, right? So everyone's coming in with a very different type of worldview, even if you have the same types of upbringing um, within your cultural and religious context. Now, knowing that, I always remind folks that we're not a monolith. And so any type of conversation that we have around Muslim, um, Muslim American experiences, but even like Muslim students specifically experiences, um, that they're going to be on a, on a spectrum. So 
you know, keeping that intersectionality of identity in mind as well. Um, some of the challenges that I see within my role um, at my campus um, is, has a lot to do with sense of belonging. So keeping that diversity perspective in mind, you have students coming in and they are looking for a place of belonging, a community, and at times it can be difficult to find folks with like-minded um, uh, perspectives. And at times it can also be challenging because not only is that diversity present within the Muslim community, but then there's also the external stereotypes and assumptions that folks are making of your identity. So, so there's like two things happening at once, which is like the internal diversity that you're experiencing and trying to find belonging and community and, um, but, you know, belongingness within your own community, but then there's also external factors that can make that difficult as you're navigating um, the college environment. Um, other things that I'm also seeing are just microaggressions. So when folks are interacting with their advisors, with their faculty members, with other staff members within student affairs, housing, dining, anywhere, um, they may experience um, you know, small moments where you have to continuously be an educator. Um, so some of the things that I can think about are just navigating uh, food and dietary restrictions, navigating finding places um, to pray, um, and, you know, navigating that between, you know, moving from your class to a reflection room, which might be on like another end of campus. Um, other things that I think about are, um, programmatically how we can support our students, um, especially during the month of Ramadan, uh, where it can be a little bit harder to access some resources due to the change in schedule. Um, broadly speaking, I, I do think that all of this kind of compounds into other types of experiences too, right? Like folks may have challenges with accessing mental health counselors who um, can provide a culturally relevant perspective within within that environment. And so one has to be an educator in many different ways. And that can be very exhausting when you're navigating um, not only your own academics and your career and finding who you are, but then also being that educator, right, in those spaces. Um, and then finally, all the things that a, you know, 18 to 24 year old student may be experiencing it's all there's an added component to our identities being politicized as well. And so navigating the political environment that our country is in at different points in time, um, you know, across the generations of Muslim students that we have had um, can impact our experiences. Um, so I'll hand it off to the next person, but these are just like general challenges that I can kind of summarize. Um, and like you were saying, Glenn, this is such an extensive, you know, topic. We can go in so many different directions, but I'll hand it off to Noor at this point. You know, before you hand it to Noor, I just want to comment that, you know, uh, the microaggressions piece and just some of the different areas in student affairs right, where um, people, the intention is to do their job, but the impact sometimes that they may have on on Muslim students maybe uh, is impactful, right? I think about like, even in my work, um, prayer spaces and dietary restrictions, taking consideration on high holidays, those, those type of things that oftentimes 
are not on the top of uh, uh, practitioners' mind. Their their intent is not to do harm, but sometimes they don't realize what they don't know. They're moving forward with and creating a little bit of microaggression and harm. So uh, the very very well said and well spoken. So thank you on on that comment, Noor. Um, so what are some of the things that you feel are pressing Muslims to experience? Um, before I go into into my thought process, I just want to add two to the list. While while we have a FAFs running list going over here, I think the other two things that also pop up are scheduling the calendar. Um, in terms of you know when when are the exams taking place or when are you holding an orientation event where families are welcome to join if it's if it's on a religious holiday for us that's like not good practice um, and then the other one is sports um, I think that's really important particularly when it comes to uh, uh, you know female students on college campuses um, if there are any kinds of um, sometimes mandatory restrictions on what can not be worn, and I'm referencing the hijab or longer clothing, um, those things become really important um, as well for us to consider. But my own, my, my research, especially when I was um, researching for, for the book, um, I tend to think of this in terms of formal educational journeys and informal educational journeys. Um, of students because any college campus or any lived experience that people have in educational spaces can be formal or informal as well. And I think both of those come into play um, uh, in, in very impactful way, uh, ways in, on college campuses. So in terms of for, uh, formal educational journeys, I like to think of that as the curriculum in particular. Mm. And we're thinking about the curriculum, I'm really thinking about the X you know, curriculum, you can be explicit in a curriculum, but you're also implicit in a curriculum. You're also nullifying certain narratives in a curriculum. And then you are also very deliberately evading certain things in a curriculum. So whatever curriculum we are signing ourselves off to for whatever course, there are these four things happening. There are things that are explicit, implied, nullified, or evaded. And I think it's very important for, uh, for folks and uh, you know, who, are, who are interacting with students to really be intentional in thinking about what's happening in this sphere of curriculum. I ask this question many times to folks. I ask them in your high school career or even till the end of your college career, when did you read a fictional text as part of the curriculum that featured a, either a Muslim protagonist or was written by a Muslim author? And I get a mixed response, which is on this very narrow spectrum, which is a never, or read something in my own time, or was assigned to me as summer reading, which, you know, how we take summer reading, um, or they had read one of these two texts. And the two texts that often people will say are, I am Malala by Malala Yousafzai, or they will say they read Khalid Hussaini's um, Kite Runner. And I always posit this, that both the texts are problematic as a part of someone's formal educational journey, because both of those texts center the protagonist far away from the United States, which is to say the Muslim experience is not the Muslim American experience. The Muslim experience belongs elsewhere on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, right? They're not here. These people are there. 
So there's always this back home, go back home, where are your parents from? But where are you really from? All those kind of questions, right? So it centers the protagonist there. The other thing that happens in both of those texts is that the protagonist is heroic because they stand out against conservative injustice and oppression that everyone was doing around them. Like, you know, <laughs> those are barbaric places where everyone is oppressive and it's patriarchal to the core. And here you have the shining hero who stands out against it. But the real whammy is this. In both those texts, the protagonist is saved by being plucked out of those geographical locations and been brought to the white Western world, whether it is the United Kingdom in the case of Malala Yousafzai or for the protagonist in uh, The Kite Runner brought to the United States, the, it, they reinstitutionalize the white savior myth. So we have to ask ourselves in terms of curriculum, where is the representation? Like so many times, like all the times I'm coming across people who are saying, we actually never read about Muslim history, never in our high school, college career. It, unless you took a course on Middle Eastern something, something, and that's a story for another day of how that's politicized and what the narrative is like there. I think this is something really important for us to think about. And then the other thing, more in terms of informal educational journeys is the discourse that surrounds not the curriculum, but the discourse that surrounds the Muslim population. In all of the research that I did for the book and beyond, 98% of the folks that I spoke to said to me, they felt guilty for 9-11. And the irony in it is that every single person that I interviewed was born after 9-11. 9-11 will remain a devastatingly uncomfortable conversations where there's a Muslim present in the room. Because either, people are either making eye contact, like what do you have to say for your people or avoiding eye contact, like awkward, what's this person doing here or whatever the case may be, right? So I think the, the discourse around how we talk about difficult topics, um, we are deathly afraid of being politically incorrect. Um, but at the same time, walk into conversations that are so heavily politicized with already taking a stance, right, about how this connects to this person sitting in my room. And the experiences that I've heard from students, I mean, it blows my mind. I had one student whose last name was Akbar. Every time the attendance was taken in the high school, the person would, you know, the person calling the, the roster would say the last name. And the students in the class would say, Allahu Akbar, right, which means God is great, but is you know, you know, it's packaged as a terrorist phrase and nobody called those those kids out. This is not a microaggression. This is a macroaggression. But engaging in difficult discourse becomes easier when you put your assumptions to a side or at least recognize that you have assumptions. And I think that piece of it was just something that was coming over and over again. Those students that I interviewed that had been in diverse college or high school settings had a far better experience than those who went to predominantly white institutions because they stuck out more because, you know, oh, you triple pretty good for a girl like you. You know, that's a PE teacher's comment, right? Or students still in high school and colleges finding spots where they can hide to pray. Like nobody should need to hide to pray, but it's something that's happening in 2023. And we we talk about 
but we really, I mean, we have to name this. This is post-2016 presidential election. Hate crimes against Muslims went up by more than 60%, mm -hmm. right? You had a narrative of bigotry and hatred. This is not simple as, okay, let's just make this small adjustment. This is like a systemic, uh, you know, narrative of oppression that is that was intentional and hateful at the same time. And it changes, it changes the conversation too. It's it's no longer respectful discourse when you have narratives that are painted and people are digging their heels in with a perspective on 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 a community or a people that they know they might not have a lot of awareness about. So yeah. And also like it has to do with how we how I mute my own language, right? Like I remember when I was in in doing my doctorate and I said, you know, our population is really marginalized. And I use that word. And my professor, she connected me and she said, your population is not just marginalized, your population is demonized. Hmm. And I said, yes, exactly. You know, I, we have to name this as it is. And I think that piece is is really powerful for me. Thank you for um, um, highlighting some really important issues. Um, Farhan, batter up. First, I wanna just, first, I just wanna affirm everything that my colleagues on this call have said. I think all those are true. There are a couple of things that are standing out to me that I think are important to name. I think there are different levels of issues that Muslim college students are facing, Muslims are facing in general. I think one is the accommodations piece, which I don't say are surface level, but are things that have shown up time again, over and over again. So you're thinking about, you know, where are some places where I, I can pray on campus? Um, so I don't have to secretly pray on the staircase as Dr. Ellie had mentioned, or having halal food options and accommodations for that, um, or having us, you know, a place of a sense of belonging, whether it's a cultural center or a reflection space. These are things that have been said over and over again. There's research on this from you know 2001 till now. Those are the things that are keep on going on and on. But I think what's what we need to do is you know acknowledge that is a real issue because those are issues that haven't been really addressed um, oftentimes because you know um, the the separation of church and state and not be able to 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 be able to support students from one specific faith over another. When, and you can see that that you know other faiths have you know there's a privilege to that there's a Christian privilege to to the to the United States in the way that we operate whether that's calendars holidays um, even messaging that go out there so I think in one sense there is this accommodations piece and then two is what Dr. Ali is are these systems of oppression that are important that we need to to not necessarily move forward from you know just around accommodations and uh, uh, these almost surface level things, but we need to shift the conversation talking about systems of oppression, the racism, the Islamophobia, the discrimination that individuals face. You know, Muslim students, at least in my study, my research ha have shown that, you know, hijabs are being ripped off. You're having physical assaults happening on Muslim college students. Even murder of Muslim college students are, are a resulting of these things. And so we need to shift the narrative to really talk about these isms, racism, Islamophobia. Uh, and these are the issues that are happening. And, you know, some of the issues that I'm realizing in my study and the participants that I've talked to in my research were that, you know, students are not even recognizing Islamophobia. It's so ingrained into society that they don't even see it. You know, when I talk about, oh, vaping in someone's face that's Muslim, that's hijabi, oh, it's just because of a lack of 
you know, awareness, not sure if that's Islamophobia, right there, that almost shows that it's so ingrained. Um, and so these are the real issues. And so when you think about identity as well, um, you can't just focus on a specific image of what a Muslim is. You know, um, Afaf had mentioned there's a, a spectrum of experiences and how people um, navigate their religious faith. Uh, and so you think about the intersections, you can't say that, you know, I can do one monolithic view uh, of, of a Muslim person. So you have to really take the intersections of identity. Someone that happens to be a black Muslim in the South, their experience is very different than someone that's in the Pacific Northwest that um, happens to be from a different sect um, in an area. And so all these things have to be taken into consideration when you're thinking about supporting, you know, Muslim students. And so, you know, these are what I'm seeing as the real issues um, that are that are that are here to stay. And so, in one sense, we need to really focus on the accommodations piece, but another level, we need to push past that and really focus on uh, dismantling and challenging these systems of oppression um, that are perpetuated uh, in institutions, these hegemonic institutions and these practices. Incredible. Fran, I'm going to stay with you, but this is going to be open to all of you because I think all of you spoke to this next question, but I want to, I want to bring this question up because I think um, some of the things that you've shared, I want to really kind of pull this all together, but I want to explore Islamophobia on college campuses. Now, um, uh, yeah, uh, the, the question is really tied to um, the the roots. What is causing Islamophobia? And all of you touched on it in, in, in your opening and in, in this last question. And I'm, I'm curious to know about how can colleges help mitigate? You know, is it, you know, obviously the the if they didn't have that awareness coming into college, as you mentioned, or like the, the awareness level is, uh, they, they didn't get that those diverse experiences early. So they're coming up to college campuses who are bringing all these different people, all these different awareness and knowledge. What can college do to mitigate the negative impacts on, on Muslim students? And this can be from a student perspective or a staff for, or faculty perspective. I would love to hear from all of you. Farhan, can you kick us off? Yeah, I think it's really important to know that Islamophobia has been around for, for centuries. You know, it, it goes back to when um, enslaved Muslims uh, came to the United States. And so you can you can trace back Islamophobia. You know, most, you know, you know, the, the biggest event Nora mentioned is, you know, 9-11. That's something that sits with a lot of people, especially, you know, people that are born post 9-11. Um, and I would say that the 2016 presidential election that Dr. Ali mentioned was a defining moment where oftentimes I equate that it's it's almost like another 9-11 that happened in terms of the the um, the impact that happened. But there are so many, um, you know, things around Islamophobia that has contributed to this. So you think about you know, global events in the political climate. You have the Muslim ban that happened. You had the, the awful rhetoric that's happening. And then there was not uh, any individuals checking or calling out, you know, um, former President Trump on making those informations. But then you also think about media. Media has always had a negative perspective of Muslims, uh, whether that be, um, you know, Islamophobic rhetoric, whether there are individuals that are being hired into doing these stereotypical roles in media in terms of like terrorist narrative, um, or there's, you know, uh, you know, institutional policies and practices that um, inver inadvertently discriminate against Muslims or really create an unwelcoming environment. Uh, and then, you know, Afaf had mentioned microaggressions and kind of everyday discrimination. These are all results of Islamophobia that are 
that have been ingrained in that. And there, there are so many things that I believe that institutions can do. But I think the number one thing for me is around policy. I think policy is one of the ways that you can really make systemic change. Are the policies that you have with institutions and universities, are they there for just guidance or are they really causing systemic change? And so I think you as senior leaders, student affairs, provosts, presidents have to really look at the policies that you have on campus and see if they're really actually um, having the impact that they're intended to have. And oftentimes that's not the case. And so I think policy is important. And I think also that it needs to come from the top. I think senior leadership need to openly call it out. And, you know, oftentimes people want to avoid that so they don't sound politically incorrect. And I think I would rather someone say something than not say something, even if it's not 100% accurate and correct. Fafna or you want to add? Sure, I can go ahead. Um, I think also post George Floyd's murders, protests, because black men continue to be murdered every single, you know, they, it just continues on and on. But the post that time we saw initiatives that were very performative in nature by institutions and organizations across the country in terms of putting forth DEI vision statements. Um, and I think it's really important when we're thinking about vision uh, and when we're thinking about policy that the work we're doing is not just a tokenistic check the box of, yes, we have a DEI statement. I think that's really important. And I think it begins at a space that I call avoiding religious blindness. I think just like, you know, some decades ago, being colorblind was the thing to do. Oh, I don't see color. And we understand how problematic that is to, to say we don't see color because that literally means you are invalidating the experience of a people. I think the, the same concept can also be applied to religious identity. Um, it, it's not something that is meant that we are supposed to be neutral or blind to. It is something that we are, so you know, we should be acknowledging and then making those accommodations that Farhan was speaking about. It can only happen once you acknowledge what's in the room. And I think a lot of times the experience of Muslim students is one of invisibility. Um, it is one of invalidation, and sadly, sometimes it is self-invalidation as well, because uh, you know, Muslim American students whether they're born or raised here or their families came from a country that was colonized or themselves came from a country that was colonized, whatever the whole you know, gamut of experience may be, um, there is also a self-invalidation that comes into play where you don't want to cause a ripple, where you don't think your experience is relevant to the mainstream, so you make yourself smaller. Um, and I think that college camp campuses have this obligation that no one makes themselves smaller. And we can only do that if we amplify the experiences of all our students. Afaf, you know, obviously a lot of the listeners um, in Student First Now are newer Student First professionals. And I'm curious to know um, from your experience, um, the recommendations you have for them um, to learn about and inform themselves when working with today's Muslim students. Before I go and answer that question, I wanted to actually uh, 
um, contribute to the prior question that my colleagues have spoken about. Um, I First of all, I just want to say that I appreciate how both Farhan and um, Noor are kind of synthesizing both from like a theoretical standpoint, as well as from a practical standpoint, the impact of Islamophobia and like where it's coming from, right? Um, I actually wanted to provide a different perspective as well, because we've been talking about our political climate. Um, there's this amazing uh, piece of work written by Namira Islam, and she has written about soft Islamophobia, which talks about how um, you can find Islamophobia as a system of oppression, particularly in left-leaning institutions or in social justice movements. And I think we don't talk about that enough either, where folks may be, like you were saying, Glenn, they may be well-intentioned, but they don't know how to support the Muslim community at the various intersections of identity that they hold and expressions that they hold. Um, and sometimes it can be very uncomfortable because they don't know how to support um, an individual uh, with, you know, with a religious um, or a specific religious and particularly here in terms of, you know, being a Muslim, like their perspectives and how to support them um, within the institution. And, and just like generally as well, like apart from like being a student, but like as a person, like how do you interact with someone who's Muslim? And I don't think people know that. <laughs> So um, I just wanted to kind of name that um, as well. And the other piece of this being that because of that lack of information or knowledge, um, there is a fear or a discomfort. Um, and I think folks aren't as courageous to kind of lean into that discomfort to identify where it's coming from, because at times it's easier to be silent, like Fran was saying, um, than saying something, but we would rather that than anything else, right? Because um, stepping into that discomfort means that there's an opportunity of growth and education and perhaps dismantling a system of a belief that they have, which is oppressive to another community, right? right. So. I love that. You know, and lean in and, 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 and oftentimes it is leaning um, in the change curse first with yourself in order to enact change in, in, in the greater community. Um, Noor, I want to go back to something we mentioned in the very beginning. Um, you know, I, uh, I, Fran, thank you for sharing um, um, that uh, 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 her website um, because I enjoyed reading some of the research and I realized, you know, and one of the, the things about having this episode and hosting the episode is I get to learn a lot. I learned a lot just kind of perusing it. I, I learned what I, I just don't know a lot. <laughs> so I learned. And so, Noor, I wanted you to um, do a deeper dive uh, quickly on the Muslim women and their experiences and what are some of the factors student affairs professionals are aware of, um, particularly when it comes to um, uh, Muslim women. Yeah, so just to backtrack a little bit, the micro-theoretical framework that I've done um, like critical race theory, you know, we, we all know what critical race theory is about, but subsets developed under CRT to capture the particular nuance of the unique experience of different demographics, like lat crit or fem crit, queer crit. And when I was doing my work, I was like, there's nothing that captures the experience of the Muslim American, which is why I coined the theoretical framework and you know, thought about the tenets that would fall under it. There, there are several tenets there. 
There are some that I find personally more powerful than others. Um, some of them go on to explain the Islamophobia that we were talking about in terms of a historical, political, social context. Won't go there now. Um, but two or three that I find that really resonate with me in terms of the female, uh, the Muslim woman um, American experience is um, one is identifiability. I think that's huge. Um, this is a unique situation. You know, if you compare it to other demographics, this is a unique situation where identifiability plays a very big role into how someone is going to be treated. Like if someone can pass off as not Muslim, their experience is very different from someone who cannot pass off as not Muslim. Uh, now you can be identified in many different ways. Sometimes people are able to tell by the name that you have. Sometimes they are able to make an assumption actually that you are Muslim based on the name that you have or the way that you speak or the color of your skin. And sometimes they can make mistakes. That happens more often than not. Um, but the experience of wearing a hijab for a, for a Muslim woman is a very clear identifiable marker, right? And uh, I mean, the participants that I was interviewing, some of them even went as far as to say, I haven't had this experience because I'm light skinned and I don't cover, so nobody can tell. And my name is, you know, something that is not so um, Muslim sounding, you know. Um, so I think the identifiability pieces is really huge. And those students who are so easily identifiable as Muslim need the additional, not just support, they need additional networks of safety and security because it's almost like they're saying, here I am, you know, if you have an ounce of bigotry or hatred in you, this is where I am. So I think that piece is, is really, really huge. And those participants spoke to me about their experience of, you know, when they were not wearing the hijab as opposed to when they started wearing the hijab um, and how they felt, you know, the tides change or sometimes it's a conversation starter. Sometimes it's what is going to trigger a lot of assumptions in people like, oh, she won't know how to speak English or she doesn't have a doctorate. Like when they're done that, I've had my, my share of all of these. Um, being told to go back home, or are you a terrorist, all of those types of things. And the second one, I think that's also really important is gender. I think that that plays a really important role in the Muslim experience as well, because Muslim women are often seen as oppressed, and Muslim men identifiable are often seen as oppressors. Before they've opened their mouth to say anything, these two target assumptions just kind of follow along in the narrative, right? you're a Muslim man, you are going to be seen as oppressive, assertive, barbaric, someone who's controlling all of those types of things, prone to acts of violence. If you're a Muslim woman, you are in need of rescue. You are in need of liberation. Uh, let's have a panel and talk about why XYZ is not a freedom of choice conversation or whatever the case may be. So in the case of this demographic, which is very unique to other religious groups, Gender plays a critical role in how the, the interaction is going to take place. Identifiability plays a very critical role. And I really think that the counter narratives, which is another tenet, also in CRT and in Muscrit, are critical in dismantling the, the, the narrative that is out there. You know, people often say, 
if you don't tell your story, no one is going to tell your story. And I'm like, actually, no, if you don't tell your story, someone else is going to tell your story. And that's the real danger because it's going to be a whitewashed, hijacked, sabotaged version of your narrative. So get up there and, you know, speak your counter narrative. Is it important uh, for it to be heard? So I think those three pieces for me are really critical when it comes to uh, the experience of Muslim women. Phenomenal. Counter narrative, speak up. I love that. So we are close to out of time. Um, and, and I'm pausing because I'm trying to absorb a lot of the wonderful information that I'm <laughs> listening to. And I think our listeners are going to feel the same. This podcast is called Student First Now. Um, if each of you can take a minute or two to summarize, what are you pondering about? What are you questioning? Uh, what's exciting you about or what's still troubling you or you know, has been troubling you, obviously, um, regarding this topic? Um, and I'm going to have Farhan, why don't you kick us off with this question? There are a couple of things that, you know, are coming to mind. I think one that's really troubling me is that we're still having these conversations around accommodations. You know, I did something similar to this podcast eight years ago, and I talked about very similar things around accommodations. Those things are still being asked of, from students. Um, and so I think that's really troubling me. But I think one that gives me hope, and, and, and Noor just mentioned it, is the power of storytelling and countering the dominant narrative. You know, counter storytelling has the power to, you know, challenge the dominant narrative and to reclaim that narrative. Um, and so it's important for administrators, peers, staff, faculty to really listen to students and their story. Because um, their story um, can really be the make or break for you to support them um, in, in their in their accommodations um, and can really help you move away from these, you know, the dominant narrative of Muslims. And so I think there is a power of storytelling. Um, it can elicit transformational change, both for the individual, but also the person that is having those specific views. And so I think for me, those are the two things that are sitting with me um, and are really important moving forward. Thank you. Noor, why don't you go next? Sure. Um, I'm annoyed at, I'm going to quote Leonardo Zeus, who said, the slow pace of white fragility, that annoys me, uh, where, you know, this is still a, a topic of, hmm, shall we do that? Whereas the demographic itself feels a sense of urgency in, you know, in, in addressing that. I think a lot of it also has to do with, for the long, and this is something that excites me, for the longest time, uh, the Muslim educational research has been minimal or invisible. And I think that that's something that really excites me. I was able to host a symposium just a few months ago where like 40 plus people got together. 15 plus were sharing the work that they're doing on the Muslim American experience. So that really excites me that there is momentum for this conversation to build. Uh, for us to network and not be in silos um, because I certainly don't want the accommodations or the policy changes to be perceived as the benevolence of people in leadership. That is not what it is. This is not an act of benevolence. This is an act of seeing it like that would be an act of privilege, you know? Um, so I think it's really important for us to own the narrative um, and, and to push for the change that needs to come. Thank you. Afaf, close us out. 
a lot of things trouble me and a lot of things bring me hope, but I think the two that I'm going to focus on for this is the first being um, that I am worried that our institutions are not equipped because we have not been keeping up with the pace of what the communities need. And so what I mean by this is that, I mean, both of my colleagues have already pointed out like like one, Fran, you mentioned that we've been talking about accommodations for so long and nothing has happened. And then two, Noor, you're mentioning that like systemically, like there's no like real movement happening, right? Like we're, we're kind of like dragging our feet. And what is troubling me as I'm kind of seeing this from like a broader perspective is that our institutions are slow to make change and our challenges are increasing. And so what I'm thinking a lot about are the um, inter-community complexities that are coming up. I mean, a lot of our discourse here is definitely being shaped by, you know, leaders within the Muslim community. But then I'm continuously looking at our student demographics and I'm hearing differences between different sects of Islam. I'm hearing differences between different ways of expression. And so, and, and those are just challenges that our staff are not equipped to, you know, keep up with at times. And so sometimes I worry about how, where is our community gonna go, you know, from here? And I hope that we continue to like hear each other and continue to coalition build within the Muslim community so that we can advocate collectively um, for ourselves and move forward. So that's the first part. Um, the thing that brings me hope is when you're kind of deep in the work, it's hard to see the change, but I look back at the past 15 and 20 years and I think about all the different centers or resources or staff members who are in positions of power who are able to influence and make change even though it's slow I'm like we're still like 10 steps ahead of where we were like 10-15 years ago and so I try to keep that perspective in mind because um it would be nice to be further <laughs> you know further out but I I try to um, see the other perspective of like, it could be so much worse in some ways. Um, and it is, I mean, I have to be honest, like I think at some institutions, it's a lot worse than it, you know, it, it should be. Um, so not discrediting, discrediting or discounting those experiences. Um, but I think there are resources and staff members available and, I think a larger network of support than there was probably, um, you know, many years ago. So sort of looking at that as like a hopeful thing. Um, but I do see that there is a long road ahead for the work that we need to do still. Thank you, Afa. I don't normally answer this question as a moderator, but I'm gonna answer it because I'm pondering a lot of things that you've all shared. I think one of the things that I'm thinking about, you know, particularly some of the comments that were made earlier about, um, you know, some of the issues that um, the Muslim uh, community has experienced is still ongoing. And, you know, I think there's obviously a lot of uh, hope that, you know, this episode is going to reach a lot of our professionals out there to make uh, how they can um, 
increase their um, their knowledge and awareness so they can make a, a difference in their work, particularly the Muslim student community. But also it's a call out to administrators and policymakers. I think that there's a lot of resources and information now and this podcast in itself is just telling me what are we doing? So to the to the newer professionals, mid-level professionals listening in, forward this on to the to the your vice chancellor or your vice president or your provost to see to listen to some of the things that um, and how we can maintain um, attention on this community. A lot of the community um, things that you're experiencing, I can connect to to some level, you know, as a Filipino American, and some of the things that my community has experienced in terms of like uh, research and awareness and knowledge, oftentimes getting pushed aside or sidetracked or not really, uh, and so the momentum slows down. So I, I I hear you. I, I think this is a phenomenal, great first episode. And you know, to our listeners, um, I'd love to hear back from them on on uh, where we want to go with this uh, this topic because this should not be the last. Um, and we need to continue this conversation and, and keep the momentum going. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Farhan Saeed, Afaf Wasim, and Dr. Noor Ali for joining me today on this topic. I want to thank in advance Nat Ambrosi, who behind the scenes does all the episode preparation and the transcription and does all the cool, um, phenomenal things. And to Heather, who also does all the graphics. So um, Simplicity, thank you for sponsoring this episode. Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life including but not limiting, limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success, accessibility services, and more. If you want to get more information on Simplicity, visit them at simplicity.com, and that's simplicity with a Y, so S-Y-M-P-L-I-C-I-T-Y. Or you can connect with them with, on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, just take your time out. Um, this panel dropped a lot of knowledge and um, there's a lot of resources and um, books um, and information. We're going to make sure that they're on the website. So we're going to um, put that in our show notes for those who would like to do some follow-up or to maybe potentially even connect with one of our panelists. So audience listeners, thanks for joining us again. Um, if you're not on our weekly newsletter um, please do so. Go to our website, studentfirstnow.com. Scroll to the bottom of the page. Um, add your email to our list. And while you're there, check out the, the archives. We've been going strong since 2020. Uh, um, and uh, we continue to just uh, garner more uh, downloads and views on YouTube and Spotify, um, pod, iTunes podcasts and whatnot. Again, my name is Glenn DeGuzman. Thanks for listening and watching. And wherever you are, make it a good day. Bye, everybody.